spicy wine for a legionary. You've been hiding, what you gain silver like this? Off a dead man. <laughs> of course. See, oh, I was pardoned by the prefect. Pardoned. Nothing can be done to me now. I said what they, uh, what was proclaimed. Say it again. Why? To see how your tail matches your mates. We were attacked in the night while sleeping by the rabid disciples. The priests paid you to say this. They stole his body and by the side of his... How did the stone fall ten paces from the tomb? It took seven men, myself included, just to roll it closed down. The ropes were uncut. They were torn as if thread. The seals melted like butter. Shall we go there? No! Why is it bother you so? No more lies. How did they take him? What happened to the Nazarene's body? You forgot us. Forgot? We'd had no supper. That's what the wine made us slumber. Yeah, 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 yeah. We slept. We've been up two days since the crucifixion. What could happen? Guarding the body of a dead man, so. Closed our eyes and turned for a bit until. Until what? Until we was wakened by this terrible. This terrible. This terrible flash. The night was gone. The air smelt burned and the, the ropes, they just. They just exploded. And the stone flew like a leaf and all of a sudden the sun. Rose in the tomb. It was the sun. It was. It was everything. And then a figure, a figure appeared that I could not gaze upon because of the terrible light. And it wasn't a man. It wasn't. And there was this voice all around I could not fathom. And then. And then we were running, we ran so far, so far, and until we could, <coughs> until we could think again. And then we went and told the priests, because, because that's what you, that's what you bade us do. And Caiaphas paid you for a different story. Tribune. I have seen much in the service of the Emperor. Cannibals in the blue Celts in Gaul and uh, I've seen a man taken by a serpent at sea. Never have I witnessed a moment so uh, so Drank was tainted. Truly. 
to use the blows. Maybe it was uh, opium or, or frankincense. Maybe the disciples stole the Nazarene's body with magic, as the priest said. Or maybe our story is true. What else could it be? I don't know. A fear to the resurrection. Terrified of the resurrection. I don't think it's something I ever had really strongly considered. I mean, it's in the story, and I'm sure in my 32 years of my Christian life, I have probably slightly mused before, oh, the soldiers were afraid. But usually my musing of the soldiers just kind of ends uh right after where we're going to read today in Matthew 28, verses 12 through 14, or 15, which says, The chief priests had met with the elders and formed a plan, and they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and instructed them, You are to say, uh, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report reaches the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the guards took the money and did as they were instructed. And this account has been circulated among the Jews to this very day. But as we will talk about here in a bit, the guards were terrified when the resurrection happened. Terrified. It's an angle or a perspective of the story I really hadn't considered, uh, really, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, or if you want to grab a pew Bible, page 1193. And we're going to consider that this morning. You know, there are four gospel accounts in your uh, Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four men all recount for us the life and ministry of Jesus. Some differences exist between them. Um, as they were coming at it from different vantage points. But all of them cover a lot of the same events when they come to the final week of Jesus' life. And this Easter season, uh, these past three Sundays, but four sermons, including this past Friday night, uh, I've used each author for different scenes in Jesus' final hours of his uh, ministry. Well, uh, we... We say final hours, but obviously after he died, he kept going. That's why we're here today. <clears throat> but for no big reason other than just my prayerful consideration, we've held out on Matthew until uh, this morning, which is, ironically, he's the first in our Bibles. And for the scenes in the Scriptures I've been using, I've, I felt the Lord highlight certain words from each gospel account for particular reasons, reasons he's wanted me to preach or unpack. And the Lord, I felt, has done the same for me today. So while we will examine more closely the themes of verses 2 through 7 in this passage, I do invite you to stand one last time in honor of hearing the Word of God. And let's read verses 1 through 10 this morning. We read that after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled away the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards trembled in fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they hurried away from the tomb in fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Do not be afraid, said Jesus. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's pray. Father, as we examine this story so familiar to us, uh, we believe that you have preserved your words for generations for a very weighty reason, and that is to continue to speak to your disciples and followers. And we pray that as we unpack uh, a few of these ideas in this passage, that you would give us open ears to hear your voice and not mine. Holy Spirit, that you would be present teaching us. We trust that you were present for the writing of these words, so please be present for the sharing of these words to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't serve a, a dead Lord and Savior, but a risen one. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. Have your way in our hearts and minds today. Say what it is you desire and move me out of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. like opening the tomb. Jesus just said in our reading, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. Matthew 10:28 Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell, says Jesus. Fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. You know, I believe that there are many things in faith that we love to take extremes on. And among those things is this, do we fear God or do we befriend God? It's kind of the age-old problem of some parents. Do I parent my child or do I become friends with them? (laughs) And these extremes have been presented in churches, I'm afraid. 
I've met some Christians that make absolutely no room for warmth, friendliness, humor, any sort of levity in the church. Everything seems to be a solemn funeral. We don't crack jokes in the presence of the king. We don't take anything light at his house. He's big, majestic, transcendent. And to do anything that suggests playfulness and a lack of sobriety suggests disrespect and a failure to understand whose presence we're in. But then there's another extreme. A reaction to the first extreme I just laid out. Don't give me that hellfire and brimstone. God's not an angry judge waiting to zap people from the sky. God says He's love. That's who He is. And we just portray Him as a nice big teddy bear who hands out hugs and muffins and pats people on the head. says, you're my little treasure. (laughs) You're my little angel. I could never be mean to you, let alone her to fly. We're chums, you and me. Fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell, Jesus says. How do we fear hugs and muffins Jesus? (laughs) And what some like to do is to tap into one of these extremes to the demonization of the other. And like many things in faith, I believe the reality is that there is a medium. (laughs) Why would we confine Jesus to one or the other when we, His creation, are both depending on the situation. Or many times, we're capable of being perceived as both from different people depending on the situation. give you an example. If you're a dad and a burglar and a murderer broke into your house, you are going to become as menacing, brutal, and scary, and terrifying as you can. Hopefully, that will make the criminal afraid. But at the same time, maybe your wife and kids will feel safe. And they have a fierce protector. We find here at the resurrection such an event. In the telling of this resurrection morning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell the story of this morning. And if you have your, your pew Bibles open, you can see right there on the page, right above Matthew 28, verse 1, where to find the other parallel gospel accounts. I found it interesting, though, that Matthew is the only one who records an earthquake on the dawn of Jesus' resurrection. Matthew also records an earthquake when Jesus expired on the cross two days prior on Friday. We read, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. At that moment, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After Jesus' resurrection, when they had come out of the tombs, they entered the holy city and appeared to many people. Matthew names this earthquake while uh, I believe Mark and Luke talk about the temple veil being torn from top to bottom. So one might deduce that an earthquake happened. It's been proposed that The earthquake here at Jesus' resurrection is an aftershock from the one of His crucifixion. And since I don't know about earthquakes, I had to Google it. And earthquake aftershocks can happen within weeks, months, or even years after an earthquake. It's interesting to me that Matthew has decided to impart this information where Mark, Luke, and John don't seem to get too hung up on this. Earthquakes. Earthquakes when the The Son of God expired on the cross and when He rose. 
As I was studying for this message, I went to more sources than I've really ever gone before. I actually found an entire sermon from John Wesley, an evangelist in the 1700s, which was an interesting title. It was called The Cause and Cure of Earthquakes. Apparently he failed at curing them. But I only skimmed that sermon, but it made me aware to me that Wesley went a route that I don't think I would have ever gone in my own day, and that earthquakes have supernatural, spiritual, heavenly ramifications to them, as if they are only judgments from God. I mean, I kind of get it. I remember right when COVID first hit, in in the middle of those two weeks to flatten the curve, when it was only two weeks, um, I should say, uh, an earthquake happened actually around here. Some Christians... I know, texted me and said, huh, isn't that interesting? As in, here we are already in a place that we Americans never thought we would be, locked down in our homes during Easter, I would add, and out of nowhere an earthquake happens. Now, I've never been one like many Christians to look too much into these things for a supernatural explanation. And furthermore, it's not like the entire world experienced the earthquakes that little old Idaho did. But... Like John Wesley was deducing, and like my, my few of my friends around that time, sometimes awesome weather happenings brings with it supernatural, supernatural reasonings for some people. And these two earthquakes that Matthew records brings with it fear, terror, and fright. Consider with me again from the crucifixion passage. As Jesus dies on the cross, the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now this is interesting. And it's hard for me to understand Matthew's timeline because it seems like this is in the first earthquake when Jesus is on the cross. We have some some dead people rising. Now, um, maybe I'm a little bit more realistic than people who write, I don't know, end of the world rapture stories, but... As far as these guys coming up out of the ground, I'm thinking of people wrapped in burial sheets, dirt covered. You know, John records of the resurrection of Lazarus and it wasn't a pretty sight. He says the man who had been dead came out of, came out with his hands and his feet bound in strips of linen and his face was wrapped in a cloth. Unwrap him and let him go, Jesus told them. So it's not like I don't think these people are coming out of the tombs in nice business suits. And I hate to sound a little disrespectful, but it's like the night of the living dead here in Matthew. Uh, It's kind of a grim, terrifying sight. Jesus on a cross, these dead people rising. But then again, as I said, Matthew is a little bit hard to track because in the same breath he writes, after Jesus' resurrection, when they had come out of the tombs, they entered the holy city and appeared to many people. So I don't know if they were hanging around alive in their tombs for a while, but Tombs in that day were like almost miniature hotel rooms. Uh, they were slightly spacious. You'd roll away a stone, you'd walk down into a tomb. They were usually cut out of the side of a cliff. And if you had a big family burial plot, you might place a person or two in one area. Then there might be a few other areas to walk around to place more people. All that to say, is Matthew meaning to say that as Jesus expired, these resurrected people rose in their tombs and then I guess they lived Friday through Sunday morning and then they came out and appeared to people then? 
Or was Matthew getting ahead of himself and maybe the earthquake broke the entrances to all the tombs and then on Sunday morning they arose? Could be that too. Probably not too important other than the fact that here are dead people rising. Jesus is rising. That's the point of our passage. And we kind of get this other picture of terror connected to an earthquake. Here with me again, Matthew sets the stage that these women are coming to the tomb. And then I take this to mean that as they're on their way, maybe they're not there yet, Matthew essentially cuts over to the scene of Jesus' tomb to fill us in on what's happening. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes were white as snow. The guards trembled in fear of him and became like dead men. That last verse showing again the terror of the moment. The fear. Charles uh, Spurgeon, a very popular preacher in London in the mid to late 1800s, in preaching on this very text, he I think he describes it well, he just says, I have no doubt that these men who kept watch at the Savior's tomb were strong men. Caesar did not pick dwarfs and weaklings for his armies. I have no doubt that they were also cruel men. Soldiers often are. And Roman soldiers certainly were of that character. They were brave men too. No men who have ever lived have ever been braver than were the soldiers of old Rome. They were also hardy, I do not doubt. Many of them had passed through arduous campaigns and they were probably all familiar with bloodshed and the sad sights and sounds of the field of battle. They had stood firm amid the shock of arms and deadly combat, but now... Just as the morning dawned, they were witnesses of the wondrous spectacle of the resurrection of Christ and the descent of the angel of the Lord. And again, he quotes verse 4 again. The guards trembled in fear of him and became like dead men. Battle-hardened soldiers. You know, the prophet Daniel has a vision that he mentions in his 10th chapter. Daniel was around hundreds of years before Christ. And he writes in Daniel 10, 4 through 9, he says, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. His face was like the brilliance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His aim, his arms and legs like the gleam of polished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but a great terror fell upon them, and they ran and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. No strength remained in me. My face grew deathly pale, and I was powerless. I heard the sound of his words, and as I listened, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. You know, when God reveals himself to a man, sometimes it's frightening. Terrifying, literally breathtaking as it appears here in Daniel. And to the Roman soldiers, even on the day that the gospel centers on, the day Christ rose from the grave, we find that even as the women are coming, the other gospel accounts tell us that they're coming to properly administer spices to Jesus' body. He was taken down in such a hurry on Friday from the cross because Sabbath starts on Friday at sundown. And so these ladies, like everyone else, they weren't expecting to find a resurrected Lord. (laughs) They wanted to 
to find him and put some burial spices on him, finish the job, respect him in his death. But even they, finding things as they are, presumably the guards are who were as dead, maybe they had enough time to gather their senses to run away. But verse 5 shows us the arrival of these women as if the guards were no longer there, or I suppose they could be unconscious on the ground. But either way, we read, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. It's interesting, this but. It's a contrast. We have a former truth, but a latter truth. And these truths are connected. Now, I did my homework. The but is kind of implied. An extremely literal rendering of this verse would be, answering now, the angel said to the women. But even in that, we still do get this contrast that these sets of events earthquakes, or earthquake, terrified Roman soldiers, and then now this, the angel speaking to the women. And the contrast is this, one side, fear and terror, but the other side, do not be afraid. The other side was afraid too, but they got no such reassurance. And this contrast, this terror to one side, reassurance to the other, was touched on so well by many of the commentators I read, but I think I'm going to quote Adam Clark. And he says, God can, by one and the same means, comfort his servants and terrify his enemies. The resurrection of Christ is a subject of terror to the servants of sin and a subject of consolation to the sons of God because it is a proof of the resurrection of both, the one to shame and everlasting contempt, to the other to eternal glory and joy. The people are coming out of the graves, either when Jesus dies or resurrects. And Jesus has resurrected here to the surprise of those coming to bury Him properly. It tells us this, there will be a resurrection for all of us. This isn't all there is. You know, a lot of things can be said about this passage, a lot of things to wrap our heads around, but consider this. You know, if, if you receive our church newsletter, The Facing Bench, if not, again, see Lois if you'd like to, but this Easter issue, I kind of brought up this sad fact that it seems like most Easter's I've had lately, there have been deaths in the family, deaths among my friends. And actually, after I wrote that very article that I sent off to Lois, I literally just received a phone call then, from Tootie saying that Dan had passed. Still, um, our friend Stan who's passed away. You know, what we do not expect is to see people who we know and have passed up and moving around next week, right? Like in some ways it'd be nice, but also if we just really thought about it, if we put our heads into what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, these people coming out of the tombs were supposed to be dead. <laughs> I'm assuming or relatives, or maybe even older. Uh, you know, some passages say old, the old saints, so it could have been some of the Old Testament people. We have no way of knowing or verifying. But the point is, is when you go to someone's memorial service or funeral, then you don't expect to see them at the grocery store next week. And it would terrify you if you did. But here's the truth. There will be a resurrection. 
Now, some look at this and might just say, no, this just means there's life after death. There's a consciousness. Sure, there are spirits of the people who have died and are alive right now, and they're having a lot better Easter Sunday celebration than you are, but this is a foreshadow in Jerusalem, a prelude as in here is how it will look. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the death comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. The first fruits, or the foreshadow, or the prelude. It's the beginning of the crop. It's an example of how the rest of the crop will look. In the same chapter, chapter 15, Paul says that there were people still living at the time of his writing who saw Jesus resurrected. Paul being one of them. Now, he didn't see Jesus in the first 40 days before Jesus ascended, but Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, blinded him. Another terrifying moment, having to be blind for three days. But the fact that dead men rise means something. It means it will happen again. You and I will rise. But what will we rise to? Daniel, that same prophet, terrified at the sight of God, records two chapters later in Daniel 12.2, he says, And many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, but others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the reality. How would the Roman soldiers fare if they died? And when they resurrect at the end, how will you fare when you die? Though there is a resurrection, I believe, when world history is consummated, Paul also believes, as he writes in the writes the Corinthians a second time, Second Corinthians five eight, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus, while he was on the cross, says to a dying friend next to him, "Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise." That while the likes of Daniel or Paul points to a future date. When there is this physical resurrection, at the same time, the Bible seems to state that there is what theologians call an intermediate state. (laughs) Intermediate meaning dead and over with our lives here before everyone's resurrected. (laughs) We seem to be conscious in the intermediate. People wonder if we're going to be floating spirits like ghosts. Do we have intermediate, like, you know, test drive bodies? I don't know. If we needed to know, I suppose Scripture would have told us. But it's enough to know. That to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And if the thief who became Jesus' follower on the cross has been in paradise with Jesus since that date, so I suppose other followers of Jesus are likewise in paradise upon dying. Which is why the resurrection isn't a terror, but good news to Jesus' followers. The angel said to the women... Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. While the resurrection terrifies some, it's reassuring for others. While it's an earthquake and the living dead for some, it's a startling quake to wake up for sleeping believers. 
I told you that there were a lot of great quotes about the contrast between the terror and the resurrection and, uh, and, and the reassurance of the resurrection. And I told you that I was only going to quote Adam Clark, but I lied. So I've got one more commentator for you. I got to, you know, show you what seeking confession looks like. Joseph Benson writes, the resurrection of Christ, which is the terror and confusion of his enemies, is the joy and consolation of his friends, the ground of their confidence and hope and the source of their comfort and fidelity for time and eternity. Here's the truth that just as the earthquake split rock, split the curtain in the temple showing that the presence of God was now open to the world, the earthquake, I believe, also splits men. On one side, we have the likes of Jesus' followers, excited, glad, ready to go on mission. And then on the other side, we have the guards, terrified. God has come down in the flesh. He's died, but He rose again. It means who He says He is. He's powerful. Even death will not defeat Him. Jesus makes it really simple. You know, Matthew records only a few lines after that line I opened with, which read again, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Jesus also says this, that therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. It seems like, in a similar sense, like Judas before them, all the guards needed was apparently a little bit of money to keep quiet. The resurrection scared them away from Jesus. It didn't excite them to proclaim Him, to confess Him. Do you confess Jesus before men? And I want you to hear this. Don't get confused with that word confess and merely think that it's just a verbal thing or a mental assent, just an affirmation. It means to be of one mind. And if you're of one mind, if you're with one mind in Christ, it will have ramifications for the rest of your life. For all your relationships, for all your activities, for your worldview, for what you support, what you lament, what you do, what you don't do, what you say, what you don't say. Confess Him though. Confess what about Him? Likely in the context of Matthew, what Jesus says about Himself. And among the things He has said about Himself, He said this, that the Son of Man does not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Gospel is one of the most humbling things. Because we... As people, we're so accustomed to working for what we get. (laughs) Impressing. Moving ahead and God says, no, 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 you can't do this. Let me humble myself and do it for you. Let me, says Jesus. Let me serve you. I want to close with a parable of Jesus in Matthew 22, 11-14. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a big feast. Maybe a lot like the lunch you're about to enjoy. I don't know. Lots of food is prepared, and so the king of this feast sends out his servants out to collect those who have already been invited, and what happens? Well, those invited have excuses. They say they have to work. Some even treat the servants of the king shamefully and murder them. So the king angrily says, 
get the guys that I've invited. I'm inviting anybody else who will accept. And so he sends out for those, and many guests do come. There's this strange ending to the parable. It says, but when the king came in to see the guest, he spotted a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But the man was speechless. And then the king told the servants, tie him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, as I was pulling my hair out, preparing for this sermon, I'm wearing a wig today, no, just kidding. Um, But I, I noticed it more than I do other gospel accounts, that, that Matthew notes this dual nature that we all share. Tough and tender, Jesus can comfort and confront in the same sentence. Guards can be terrified and the gals can be comforted. And along those lines, Jesus talks about many will come to Him saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name or do miracles in Your name? But Jesus says in Matthew 7, Go away, I never knew you. Do you have the wedding clothes to get into the feast? Will you confess Christ before all men? Live for Him. As He has died for you, will you die for Him? The death and and resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we too must all die to sin, rise in, in new life, empowered by His Spirit, trust in Him for forgiveness. As He has risen, we too should rise again and walk in Him and in His power. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I guess one of the biggest things that bothered me as I was preparing for this message is I felt like you were telling me to hone in on this very dark approach to your resurrection and this is a day of light and victory and resurrection power and but father you 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 remind us that it is a sobering thing it's a true thing it's not just something we happily imagine and recount every year for the giddy feelings it gives us but it means something that God, you became flesh. You walked among us. You you died for our sins. You rose again. Uh, Father, and while you were here, you, you've made demands without apology. You don't make those demands because you're angry at us or, Father, that it's such a chore to follow you. But it, being our creator, you know how we will thrive in life. Being our creator, you know what we were made for. And thankfully, the things you call us to are a calling to fulfill our God-given um, creation mandate that we were made to be in communion with you. Uh, Father, so we pray that all of us would have these wedding clothes. Father, that all of us would confess you before all men. And Father, if anybody here hasn't, I just pray that they would say this prayer with me, that Father, would you please forgive me of my sins? Father, that uh, I have sinned against you. Please, Lord Jesus, I accept your death for my penalty. And I believe and trust that you rose again. Please, Holy Spirit, come and live in my life. Help me to love, serve, and obey you. And help me to love and serve others. And Lord Jesus, help me to confess you before all people. We ask and we pray, Father, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Resurrection Sunday.